that on. There we go. Um, I have an unusual, two unusual and quick announcements. I'll do it really quickly. Um, number one is we have this Bible study on Zoom, and that's where the majority of the people are, but we have a good crowd here as well, which we're thankful for. Um, we do this at Oakhurst Evangelical Free Church in Oakhurst, obviously. Um, the church is growing, and yet giving as a, as a total number is down in our church. So if you can help this church, we would so love that. Um, you can give online at oakhurstevfree.org. You can uh, mail a check to the addresses on the website or put something in those boxes back there. I never mention money. I don't even, I'm not even comfortable, comfortable mentioning money, but um, there, there's a deficit that we're facing. We had a huge crowd for Easter and very, very little giving, kind of an unusual thing. So if you can help, it costs money to keep the lights on and buy this expensive stool that I'm sitting on and what have you. I'm just joking. Um, the only other announcement is at this church this Sunday at uh, 10 o'clock is our Sunday service, and I'm giving the sermon, which shows you how hard up they must be for people to speak if they've got me teaching. So anyway, um, that's available online on that same website, or come here in person if you live nearby. Okay, we're going to study 1 Timothy chapter 4. So the backstory, if you haven't been here, 1 Timothy is a book written by the Apostle Paul, and he writes it to his protege, his younger friend, Timothy, who is the pastor of this church in Ephesus. And the church has all kinds of problems. And they've got false teachers that have infiltrated it and are spreading a bunch of bad doctrine. There's all kinds of bad things going on. He's writing this letter to encourage Timothy to stay the course and to teach him what pastors need to do, how to choose people to lead a church um, and there's a lot of interesting things here and all kinds of doctrine and what have you. Tonight, we're going to talk about uh, spiritual gifts and um, uh, all kinds of things. Anyway, being an example, that's one of the other things we're going to talk about. Anyway, let's dive in. We left off right around uh, verse 11, I think it was. Um, so, so I know that you're awake. If you're here now, say Amen. Okay, good one. And those of you on Zoom, just wave or say amen or something beautiful. All right, can't hear you, but I bet it was a good amen. All right, um, so he just talked about physical training being of some value, but it's much more valuable, uh, verse 8, um, to deal with the spiritual end of things. We are supposed to take care of our bodies, but the spiritual is e eternal. Therefore, it's more important. That's why he says in verse 10, that's why we labor and strive because we've put our hope in the living God, who's the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So Timothy, we know, is much younger. The guesses in the commentaries were that Timothy's late 20s, maybe 30 years old, pastoring a church where there's a lot, there's people that are older that don't respect him. They're not um, respecting his authority. Paul is probably late 60s, could be even 70 or older. Um, and he trained and um, uh, led Timothy to the Lord. Verse 11 says, command and teach these things. There has to be for a pastor, a sort of an authority. Uh, sometimes it's not comfortable to do that. Timothy, we know from what he, Paul writes to him, is a very timid guy who's a little uncomfortable being commanding of a church. In fact, what's thought 
what is thought that happened is Timothy wrote a letter to Paul saying, I can't handle this church. Please let me join you on the road, witnessing to people and planting churches. I don't know that I'm cut out to be a pastor. Paul writes this letter to Timothy to say, no, stay there. This is your God-given gift. Use it. And so he tells him here, you need to command these things, fearlessly bring God's word. We have an epidemic in this country of, of churches who are watering down the gospel and won't preach on sin or judgment or hell or the devil or anything scary. They just preach love and everything's great. Hey, the Bible is a book of love. I think it's number five on the list of the top words that are spoken in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, but we're supposed to teach the whole word of God fearlessly without watering it down, without censoring anything out. That's why if you've never been here before, we do what's called expositional Bible teaching here. What that is, is we do not do a series on angels and a series on forgiveness and a series on hope or whatever it may be, or the cross. All of that's important. Expositional Bible teaching, it's a fancy word. All it means is we pick a book of the Bible and go through it one verse at a time. The beauty of that is you don't skip anything. You don't overlook anything. And because we believe it's God's word, we go rather slowly, right? I've been accused of that. So he's told to command and teach these things. That's part of the job of a pastor. Verse 12, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Don't let them look down on you because you're young. But what he's saying is, because you're young, you're sort of going to have a bullseye on your back with some older folks that think they know more than you. So, Timothy, as the leader, as the pastor, you need to be an example. Live such a pure, holy life, an obedient life, that they can't have anything to hang on you, to accuse you of. Notice the list of things. First of all, set an example. This is a list for elders, pastors. They are to live by example what they teach, what the Bible preaches. Paul is confident enough that he says in one of his epistles, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. I got to tell you, I would not be comfortable saying to you people, imitate me. I know me. Don't imitate me. Imitate the Lord. Uh, we're all imperfect, right? But set an example. Now, listen, some of you already tuned out when I said, this is instructions for Timothy and for pastors. I got news for you. The only Bible some people will ever read is you. Unbelievers that know you, that you see at work or at school or your neighbors, they might not want to come to church. They might not want to read the Bible, but they know you're a Christian. They're watching your life. So our conduct, this applies to us as much as pastors, anybody, evangelists, whatever. We are to set an example because they're watching our lives. And it's a spectator sport to pick off Christians finding the least little hypocritical thing they do. All the more reason we need to be imitators of Christ, set an example. So that's the first thing. Set an example for the believers. First thing, in speech. 
in what you say, it matters. Words can be hurtful. Words can be misconstrued and misunderstood. Be careful with your speech. We just finished the book of James not long ago. There's almost a whole chapter about the tongue and controlling the tongue and what it's a mighty fire that's, uh, you know, it's a boat that's out of control without a rudder. Careful with our speech. Next thing in conduct with what we do. Christianity is not just a philosophy where it's believed here. It's worked out in what we say, what we do, our motives, what we think even, all very important in our conduct. He's telling Timothy, watch over the flock that is your church, but keep watch on yourself. Look in the mirror. Watch yourself carefully. Very important that he sets an example. In speech, in conduct, here's the next one. In love. That's an important word. Uh, The sermon that I'm giving on Sunday has a whole section on love. Agape, unconditional, undeserved, supernatural love. If you're coming on Sunday, you're going to hear me say this now and hear it again on Sunday. I apologize, but it's true. I always say in this Bible study that the Bible, God commands us to love. Therefore, love is not what you've been taught. What you and I have been taught with popular music, with romance novels, with romantic movies, we've been taught that love is a feeling. It's an emotion. It's something you feel. I have to feel love before I can be loving to him or to her. Incorrect. And here's why. Because you can't command an emotion. You can't do it. Just to show you, I'm going to command all of you, when I count to three, I want everybody to be sad. Ready? One, two, three, because sad is an emotion. Did anybody get sadder? No, you're either sad or you're not. You can't command sadness. You can't command an emotion. Everybody on three, be happy. One, two, three. Are you happy on Zoom? Let me see you smiling. Okay. You're faking it. Or you're sad. Oh, come on. You can't command an emotion. Okay, well, then what is love if it's not an emotion? It's a verb. It's something you do. You don't have to feel it. It's a command. If God commands that we are to be loving, then we act lovingly toward people. How far do you want to take this though, Joe? I'll tell you how far. Love your enemies, Jesus says. There you know it's not an emotion because you have no emotional attachment to your enemies, right? We are supposed to just put out the love. You say, well, where do we get such love that doesn't really make sense? You just, to quote Nike, you just do it. You just act loving to people, whether they're lovable or not. What people tend to do, the default position of humanity is this. I will love these people because I know them. I like them. They're loving. They're nice to me. That guy over there, I don't really like him. I'm not going to be loving to him. Okay? Here's the thing. They, I think, deserve my love because they're my friends. This guy does not deserve my love. He's my enemy or he's not friendly to me. Here it comes. You ready? God showered. Imagine God pouring a bunch of water on me. He showered me with love, forgiveness, peace, patience. He was so patient with me, patient for a whole decade with me. He's showered me with all these things and I deserve none of it. I was a jerk to God, right? 
So if that guy is a jerk or gal is a jerk to me, I have to be loving to them because I'm just turning outward what God has given me vertically, giving out horizontally what God has given me vertically. Now I don't have to do this sermon on Sunday because that's about half of it right there, the short version. Um, I'm going to tell the story on Sunday. I'm giving it all away here. Um, I came home from school when I was a kid, I don't know, seven, eight years old. There was a kid, last name was McGee, and he was a, a jerk, a real jerk. Not Everybody kind of didn't like him. He was kind of a bully. And I told my mom about it when I came home from school. My dad was at work. And she said, <clears throat> when he's a jerk to you, I want you to look at his forehead. And I thought, what? And she said, look at his forehead when he's being a jerk and imagine that you can see the words, I need love. Because that's why he's a jerk. And it will make you able to give him the love because that's the last thing you want to do and befriend him and be kind to him. And it turns out it worked. So look at some foreheads the next time you see a jerk. Don't look at mine. I saw you. I need love because you know what? That's you. You don't know what's going on in people's lives, maybe in their past, at their home. Uh, you know, there's tragedies we don't even know about. In any case, be an example in love, be loving. That's Christ-like. Amen. Let's keep reading in verse 12. In faith. If the pastor's freaking out and acting out of everything's a big disaster and he's so worried, he's showing a lack of faith, how's that going to reflect in the congregation? If he's worried, we better be worried. He needs to show forth his faith. But faith, don't forget, James says, without works is not sick. What? Dead. Therefore, Part of faith is acting in faith, in love and what have you. Okay, and the last one, impurity. That's an overall term for purity uh, in terms of sin, especially with regard to, as a young man, Timothy is, um, in regard to sexual things. No double entendre, no flirting, purity. He's to be an example. People are watching your life and mine, whether we know it or not. Okay, Paul says in verse 13, uh, of a first uh, Timothy four until I come devote yourselves, devote yourself, sorry, to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching that verse might be the most condensed place in the whole Bible where someone says, here's what a pastor, what an elder is supposed to do. Look at it. Devote yourself, by the way, don't, don't play at Christianity. Don't dabble in it. Devote yourself to three things. Number one, public reading of scripture. Part of every church service ought to be a reading from some book of the Bible, right? Publicly. This goes back to the Jewish religion where in synagogues and at the temple, this was always done. They had it not in a book, in scrolls. They would open the scroll of Isaiah. You see it in, I think it's Luke 4, where Jesus is the guest speaker. They had that at synagogues, and he opens and reads Isaiah, I think it was 61, which predicts his own coming and says to them, today I tell you in, in your hearing, this scripture is 
fulfilled. And they almost throw them off a cliff after that. The point is there ought to be public reading of scripture. Very important. Scripture is God's word, right? So we ought to teach from it, but it, the main thing ought to be the scriptures itself. So that's, we do that here. If your church doesn't do that, you need to find a church where they do that. That's number one. Public reading of scripture, by the way, what's scripture? For us, we have the whole Bible, all 66 books of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. It's interesting. They would read from the Old Testament, even in Christian churches, but they would also read from the writings of Paul and John, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and what have you. Uh, at one point, Peter, in his writings, in one of the two letters he writes, Peter calls the writings of Paul, his contemporary, scripture. The writers of the New Testament knew they were writing letters to churches or to individuals, but they also knew the Holy Spirit's inspiring every word that I'm writing. This is scripture, public reading of scripture. Number two, preaching and teaching. Some translations have exhortation. Exhortation is encouragement. It's one thing to say, now I'm going to read this passage and read it. It's another to say, now let me uh, explain what it means. Okay. That's teaching. The one in between the little sandwich, the meat in the sandwich is encouragement or um, applying it to people's lives, encouraging them, exhorting them, do it. Be this sort of person, do whatever the word of God is saying. We are to obey it. How many know that the Bible is not a smorgasbord? It's not a restaurant where you can pick, I want the, I think I want the olives and I'll take the salad, but I don't want the turkey. I think I want the fish. We're supposed to take all of it, the whole counsel of God. You can't pick and choose. Can't tear pages out of your Bible much as you'd like to, right? So devote yourself to public reading of scripture, preaching and teaching. Encourage people to obey. And it's it should be systematic. What do you mean by that? I mean, week after week, you build one precept on another until you're built, you're teaching people so that they can not only understand it and live it, but teach it to others. Verse 14, do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Okay. What is he talking about? Was it his birthday? Did he get a birthday gift? No. He's talking about spiritual gifts. How many know there's a bunch of spiritual gifts? I actually compiled a list of them, um, and I'm going to read them real fast, and then we'll talk about what they are. Administration, being an apostle, discernment, evangelism, exhortation. That's that encouragement thing. Faith, Giving, healing, helps, hospitality, knowledge, leadership, mercy, prophecy, serving, speaking in tongues, teaching, sometimes known as shepherding, and wisdom. There's even a verse that talks about the gift of singleness for people that aren't married. Um, not in the same category, but these are all spiritual gifts. The Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians, wait for it, that if you're a Christian, every single Christian has some spiritual gift. I'm not talking about the ability, uh, the gift, and some people have it, the ability to, my nephew, my grandson has the a, a gift with mechanical things. He can fix anything, assemble anything. Me, 
complete dunce in that category. Some people have the gift of art or of music or of writing great eloquent things, right? Those are not spiritual gifts. You can still use those gifts, all of them, for your Lord's glory. But every Christian, first thing I want you to remember, has a spiritual gift. If you don't know what yours is, you need to look at this list and ask God, will you reveal to me what your gift is? Here's the thing. If I give you a gift for your birthday, I'm giving you a gift for you to use, right? If God gives you a gift, he's giving it for you to use. Listen, not for your own aggrandizement, for the building up of the Christians that are around you. That's the reason. Not so you can go, look at my gift. Wow. I really got the gift of whatever it is. It's all for his glory. So who gives the gifts? There's churches where people say, if you come in the back room here, we can give you the gift of tongues. Wrong. Spiritually, I mean, biblically, completely wrong. You're saying there's no gift of tongues? I'm not saying that. I'm saying the Bible says the Holy Spirit gives the gifts as he sees fit. Okay. Everybody's got at least one gift. Some people I've known have had so many gifts that blew my mind, but they're all for God's glory. We have them so that we can be used in the church. Some of them, the gift of administration. You ever meet people that are so organized, they can just make lists and get everything going. And we need to do these tax payments and pay the bills. Not my gift. Um, being an apostle. That job, those jobs have already been taken, but apostle means one who is sent. So in a sense, if you have the evangelical gift to go out and witness to people on the street, you might have that gift in a sense. Gift of discernment. Discernment is being able to sense that there's something really evil going on here. We need to get out of here. You ever get that creepy feeling that this kind of feels almost satanic here? Let's go. Or the, on the opposite side, the gift of discernment that says, I can hear when this person speaks that God is speaking, that it's lining up with scripture. Remember, scripture is the final court of arbitration for any of these things, not what I say, not what anybody says. The gift of evangelism, Billy Graham, uh, Greg Laurie, there's many, many people that have that gift that can speak to a crowd and say, would anyone like to receive Jesus? And people just come forward. They just move. It's the spirit doing it. He's giving the gifts. The gift of faith. I got news for you. You all have that gift. What do you mean? I mean, Romans says, also from the sermon Sunday, it all ties in. God says in the book of Romans, unto each, he's talking about Christians, is given or allotted a measure of faith. Every Christian has been given faith. What you do with it varies from person to person. I like to think of it as a muscle. The more you use it, the more you exercise it, the more you live it, the more it grows, the more useful it is. The less you use it, the more it atrophies and just sort of sits there. Remember the parable of the talents? A guy gives out one, five, ten. This guy invests it. That guy invests it. One guy just buries it and says, eh, I just didn't want to lose it. So I, that's wasting your gift. Is that a sin? Absolutely. It's a sin to waste your gift. The gift of faith, what he's talking about here is an extraordinary, you ever meet people that just have that faith that you just are envious. Everybody's got some, some people have extraordinary faith. The gift of giving, don't worry, we're not going to take a collection, but the gift of giving. 
if you have more than you need in terms of time, talent, treasure, you give those to the, the church or to a ministry. The gift of healing. Some people have it. Some people claim to have it. I don't know if they do or not, but it's an extraordinary gift. That's what called one of the sign gifts. There are those that believe those ceased with the closing of the first century when the last apostle died out. Do I believe God could still heal somebody? Of course. Who am I to say, no, you're done with that. Who knows, right? But the gift of healing, the gift of, I love this one, helps. Now, that's not an extraordinary gift that people go, wow, that's cool. I think it's one of the coolest gifts. Do you know what it is? That humble person that goes, you know, the floor needs vacuuming. Where's the vacuum? Just helps whatever you need. Oh, the windows could use some washing. I'm going to wash that door back there. The toilets need washing. Now, if you're thinking, well, that's kind of below me, maybe you should, you should ask God about the gift of helps. The gift of hospitality. You ever know those people that are constantly opening their home to others, having people over for dinner? The gift of knowledge. Supernaturally, God speaking to you saying, tell Ken he shouldn't go there. It's going to be dangerous. Or the Lord says this, we need to be careful with these things that it's not indigestion and we're getting a false message, but there's such a thing as a gift of knowledge, the gift of leadership. Not everybody is a leader. Amen. But some are use those gifts. When God shows you, I, I I've made you a leader, use it. The gift of mercy, just beautiful. It ties in with grace, right? The whole idea of somebody deserves punishment and you have a soft heart for them that is God-given the gift of mercy, the gift of prophecy. Now that is in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all those guys, Micah, that were prophets of God that God anointed with the Holy Spirit and said, tell the people, I say this. And they would say, thus saith the Lord. And they were careful to make sure every word was what God had said. Nowadays, that prophecy gift, could it still happen? Absolutely. Is it normative? Is it happening all over the place? Not really. But the gift of prophecy is also, it's forth telling prophets would say, this is going to happen eventually, and it would. But it's also the fourth, F-O-R-T-H, the fourth telling of God's message. So in a sense, I am prophesying right now. I'm not telling the future. I don't know the future, but I'm saying to the best of my ability, what I believe the scripture is talking about when we're talking about spiritual gifts, for example, prophecy, the gift of serving similar to helps. You ever see those people at church? They just always want to just want to serve. Just want to help people. We don't know their names. The reward is great in heaven. The gift of speaking in tongues, other languages that supernaturally the person doesn't know, and God gives them the ability to do so. Um, let's see, Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit is given and people are speaking in all kinds of tongues about the wondrous things God has done through Jesus Christ. People are hearing it in different languages going, wow, this is supernatural. Remember the wind and the fires, uh, the little tongues of fire and all that, um, speaking in tongues. That's an issue that we can uh, disagree on, but not divide over. What do you mean? I mean, some people believe that the gift of tongues is still extant today in the church. Some people believe that the gift of tongues is no longer extant because we now have the word of God. The end of the first century, those things greatly declined. If you look at church history, they did 
greatly decline. Does that mean God couldn't give someone the ability to speak in a different language if he wanted him to? Of course he could. Who am I to say God couldn't do that? The gift of teaching, sometimes known as shepherding, eldering, being a teacher in a Bible study. I've told you this before. I was the kid in school that would do anything to get out of speaking in front of the class. Anybody else like me? I just get up and give your report now. Oh, please, I'll do, I'll do two written reports if I don't have to talk in front of the class. Why am I here? It's a total God thing. It's the last thing I would see myself doing uh, a long time ago. Last one, the gift of wisdom. Anyway, I wanted to give you that little list of spiritual gifts. Pray about it if you don't know what your gift is or gifts. And whatever it is, use it for his glory. That's why he gave it to you. Okay, back to the text. That was a little detour. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Pretty good. On Zoom, are you awake? Okay, good. I see you're waving. Okay, don't neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. When they ordained Timothy, and Paul was there, we know from elsewhere in the New Testament, they laid hands on him, prayed over him, and someone, it doesn't say who, prophesied, this man's going to be a great man of God. He's going to lead many to Christ. I'm making it up, but it could have been something like that. He's going to be a pastor of a church. Paul's saying to Timothy to, to encourage him to stay the course and be the pastor. He's saying, don't forget, I was there when you were ordained, when we laid hands on you and prayed for you. And some, remember what they prophesied about you? Are you going to call that untrue and go give up? Stay the course. So neglecting a gift is definitely a sin. Um, the body of elders laid their hands on you. Laying of hands on is for ordination, for prayer, sometimes prayers for healing, where they, people lay hands on people, anointing people with oil. The elders here, I did it in the last four months or so um, in that room right there. We laid hands on someone and each of us prayed for healing, a person that we prayed for her earlier who has cancer. Um, verse 15 be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. It's sort of a restatement of what I said earlier. Don't play at Christianity. Don't make it one hour, two hours on Sunday. Give yourself diligently to these things, not just for pastors, for each one here. We need to be working as hard as we can because our boss is the God of the universe who's given us every valuable thing in fact, everything that we have, every good and perfect gift comes where? Down from the Father of Lights, James says. Okay, um, so be diligent, give yourself holy, don't play at Christianity. So everyone may see your progress. He's to be their example. He's their pastor. Watch over the flock, but watch yourself. Watch, look at verse 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll be, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He's saying, first of all, watch your life. Watch your lifestyle. Don't drift into sin. Do you know that most pastors who fall do not fall in a moment? It's a very gradual thing. Satan is very patient with the temptation, and the pastor just thinks, well, a little won't hurt. Nobody's going to know. And then eventually there's a big blow up, and the pastor has fallen into sin. Watch your life and doctrine closely. What's doctrine? What you believe. 
and as a pastor, what you're teaching. Every Christian needs to know what they believe and why they believe it. In other words, because it says it here in scripture, not because I say it or some preacher says it or some guy on TV says it or on the radio. You can always back things up with scripture. When you can't and you hear teaching that you can't back up with scripture, you are to discard it immediately. Watch your doctrine closely. Jesus Christ was not really the son of God. Hopefully somebody's getting upset. That's bad doctrine. He was, he looked like he was, but he wasn't really. Okay, here's some real heresies that were around at this time. Jesus Christ was the son of God, but he wasn't really human. He appeared to be human. He wasn't really human. That's Gnosticism. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead bodily. He rose spiritually. Jehovah's Witnesses believe this. His body just vaporized. He rose as a spirit. He didn't rise bodily. Listen, this is important. He rose bodily. Luke 24, he appears to the disciples. They think they're seeing a ghost, a spirit. Remember what he says? It's me, myself. Handle me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as you see I have. He rose bodily. What's your point, Joe? These are all little, just little deviations of doctrine that, if you let it go and you start believing it, can lead to worse and worse and worse doctrine until you've drifted and you don't even realize how far you are from the truth of the Bible. Okay. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. You know what that means? Keep on keeping on. Don't give up. Keep on going. Timothy, we're about to learn, has health problems. Timothy's got stress. Timothy's afraid of the people in his congregation. He's a little timid. He's got all kinds of things going on. If you made me guess, he's having a hard time sleeping at night. Um, He's taking Somonex, and they had it back then. That's a sleeping pill for those of you that aren't as old as me. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Keep on keeping on, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, that doesn't mean in the, in the absolute sense you're saving yourself. God, Salvation is of God alone. Okay, but what he means by this is by watching your doctrine, watching your life, you will be able to be used instrumentally in the salvation of others. If you witness to someone and they come to Christ, you cannot say, I saved Louise over here. You didn't save anybody. Jesus died on the cross and saved for them, but he condescends to use us human instruments, but we have to watch our lives and our doctrine closely. We will never achieve sinless perfection this side of death or heaven, ever. Despite what Joyce Myers says, she's not sinless. She no longer sins. That's what she said. Not true. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't watch our doctrine, watch our lives. Uh, It's very important. Okay, we're going to move to chapter five. Um, Quick um, sidebar. Keep your finger in 1 Timothy. Turn a few books to the right to 1 Timothy. I want to use one verse as a backdrop. Go to 1 Timothy 3 with me just really quickly. This is a great verse to memorize, by the way. Um, And it's if you know what apologetics is, the giving of answers to people to their questions about Christianity. This is the verse for that. Uh, uh, First Peter three fifteen. 
Oh, I didn't say Peter. What did I say? Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. I didn't sleep that well last night. First Peter chapter three. Sorry. First Peter chapter three, verse 15. But in your hearts set apart Christ as a great teacher. Nope. Lord, boss, Kyrio, same word for God in the Old Testament and the New. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always, here it comes, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But this do with gentleness and respect. What that verse is saying is be studied up on the scriptures, on what you believe and why you believe it, so that when someone says, boy, you're, you're a, you're, you seem to have a piece that I don't see much, or you're very different, or why did you return the, the wallet that you found instead of just keeping the money? Most people would have kept it. That's an opportunity to say, you know what? I probably would have kept it if it was you're talking about me, but Jesus has changed my life. I'm prepared to give you an answer. Here's what he did. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He lived the perfect life. He died in my place and yours. And if we believe that, then he counts our record as forgiven and his record of perfection is put on us. There's a simple version of the gospel. Always be ready to give an answer. Okay, now go back to first Timothy. I'm going to get these books straight one of these days. I've only been a Christian a few years. No, I'm just kidding. Um, okay. First Timothy. Uh, let's see. So now he's going to give practical information about how to handle all those dudes and ladies in his church, older people, younger people, young ladies, older ladies, widows. You're going to see it all here. What's happening behind the scenes is there's problems. I'll show you as we go. Verse one. Um, first, we can talk about the older people. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he was, was your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Okay, what's going on here? Timothy, a younger guy, sometimes has to correct guys twice his age who are teaching false doctrine or they're sinning in some way coming to church drunk or they're whatever they're doing that's a sin he's got to humbly but forcefully tell these people the truth even though you have to address them as a father with respect with gentleness don't lash out at them is kind of what the greek word means here uh, for rebuke it's a different word from the user word for rebuke in the new testament don't rebuke an older man harshly exhort him as if he was your dad your father because in a real sense a church is supposed to be a family under one father god right and so if you have kids didn't you hate it when your kids fought i did and my parents hated it when my brother and i fought the point is, we are to treat each other with respect, whether we're much younger or much older and what have you. Exhort them as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers. They're more same age group kind of thing, but treat them the way you would a brother. The whole family term thing is here over and over. Verse two, older women, treat them as mothers. I've been blessed to have three women that were much older than me over the course of my Christian life who treated me like mothers, uh, like a mother, treated me like their son. Um, and it was wonderful. W one in particular, she died several years ago. Um, her name was Pat Miller. 
And my mom had died um, uh, in the year 2000. And I met this woman shortly after. And she just was like a mother to me and so sweet to me and taught me doctrine as well. And I come to find out she's born. She was born on September 11th, same day as my mom. It was almost like a little thing going, it's like your mom, isn't it, Joe? And she was, she was wonderful to me. Anyway, it's a blessing. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. And he adds a special little addendum with absolute purity. What do you mean? I mean, a younger man like Timothy might not have been married. Younger women, don't be alone with them anywhere. Treat them with purity. There's no suggestive stuff. There's no impure thoughts. Treat them with purity. So many pastors have fallen because of the lust thing. And by that, the gospel is impugned. People look at it and go, oh, see, look at that. What hypocrites. People love to make fun of Christians as being hypocrites. Let's not give them any ammunition. Those of you that are older, like me, um, I found two verses I want to read to you. Leviticus 19, you shall, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an older man and fear your God. I am the Lord. Okay, here's the best one. Proverbs 16, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. So look around the room at some silver-haired folks, and look, she's kind of like this to Jim's. And it's, it's very important that we respect our elders. That's what we, we were always taught in my family. Let's take our two-minute break and stretch our aging bodies, and make sure you say hello to somebody you don't know. Those of you on Zoom, I'm going to turn my screen off for two minutes. I'll be right back. Don't go away. There we go. Find your seats, if you will. We're back in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Find your seats back there. Um, just met some new people. That was awesome. All right. Um, let's see. So he's being taught by Paul, Timothy is, how to treat each member of the church, how to treat older men, younger men, brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, absolute purity. Again, being an example. We talked about it earlier. This is good advice for a pastor. I got news for you. It's good advice for all of us. And the same is true for the opposite gender. And yes, we say the word gender here. Sorry if that offends you. If you're a woman, treat women as sisters, treat men, younger men with absolute purity. Oh, people are bringing snacks in. Look at that. Anyway, let, go to verse 3, chapter 5, verse 3. Now, this is the start of a lengthy discussion on a specific member uh, uh, or a category of people in the church, widows, okay? I want to preface the widows section by telling you that um, in, the, in the time, you know this, but I want to remind you of it, in the time in which this is being written, first century um, in Ephesus, as well as most of the world, okay, there were churches, but I'll tell you what there wasn't. Welfare, food stamps, unemployment, disability, Obamacare, um, government assistance of any kind, 
None of that. You're poor, you're out of luck. Okay, but if you're a woman and your husband died, it was not like it is today where a woman could, well, I'm just going to get a job and support my family now. Not that way. Much more difficult for women than it was for man, for men. So that an older woman whose husband died was the one of the most vulnerable types. The other one would be orphans, little children whose parents weren't around for whatever reason. So with that as a backdrop, they would come to the church and ask for help. Okay. There's a principle in um, one of the Corinthian books. It's in my notes somewhere. A second Corinthians three ten. Paul talks about people coming to a church and asking for help. And the principle is this, and it wouldn't be politically correct today, but it's biblical. So here I go. You ready? If a man or woman will not work, neither shall he eat. What does that mean? It means if you come to a church and ask, can you help us financially? And the pastor says, sure. Would you like to wash some windows or vacuum the floor or mop the floor out there? And you say, I don't want to do any of those things. Then the pastor knows you don't want to work. I want to clarify this though. So nobody thinks I'm cold hearted. What it doesn't say is this. If a man cannot work handicapped, too old, you know, for whatever reason, he can't work. That's a whole different ballgame. Okay. I'm talking about able-bodied people that just don't want to work. Okay. With that as a backdrop, verse three, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Literally in the Greek, it reads widows who are widows indeed. What does that mean? He's about to explain that if a woman has her husband pass away, but she's got three kids that live nearby, the kids, it is their responsibility to take care of mom or grandma if, they, uh, if that's who's nearby. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. This is the way he introduces the whole widow subject. Verse four, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, by the way, see grandchildren, see that word? King James has the word nephews there, okay? I looked it up. It's because in the 1700s, uh, nephew meant grandchildren as well as what we would call nephews. Now that word is archaic. It means nephew. The, the son of my brother is my nephew. So when you read that, if you have King James, that's what it's talking about. If a widow has children, verse four, or grandchildren, we're in chapter five of first Timothy. These, who's these? The children or the grandchildren should learn, first of all, to put all their religion into practice. Faith without works is dead. By caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. There's another um, principle in the Bible, which is when we've been given much, we are to give much in return, right? Jesus says that. Um, and the principle exists throughout the Bible. We've been given much by God. We give God everything. We hold everything we own with, our, with an open hand so that God can take out of it or put into it whatever he wants. In the same way, 
if you have a mother or a father, I got news for you. You didn't know it when you were that young, but they fed you, clothed you, wiped your bottom. Don't make me draw you a picture. They did a lot for you. Okay. And it is an abomination that a kid, a child, even an adult child would disregard their own parents and not care for them. What was happening in, in Ephesus was let the church take care of them. The kids are busy with their family. Mom's a widow now. Let's let the church help. He's saying that's not the first way it's done. Another principle in the Bible, I said it earlier, is work, which is a good thing. The primary way that a person is cared for is primary through their own work, okay? If they can't work for whatever reason, because of the culture or they're unable to, then the next way primarily God has designed is the family helps. The church ought to help when there's a woman whose husband has died, she's a widow, and there is no close family anywhere nearby. She's got no one. Those are the people God especially wants churches to take care of. Churches face a very daunting task, which is people constantly coming to them. We have a few elders in the room now who will agree to this, uh, or deacons, for please help us, right? And churches want to help, but they can't just be throwing money around because there's people who are not very ethical, who go from church to church to church to church and end up getting donations from each one. Please, could you help us? that kind of thing. A sure giveaway that something's afoot is when the person says, I need money. And they say, what was that? The watch? What about the watch? Oh, sorry. Um, someone says, I need money. And they say, well, can we give you some food? And they say, no, I want money. Okay. Could we give you some clothing? Is that what you need? Or could we pay your rent for you? No, I need money. Sure giveaway that, hmm, what do you need the money for? There are people that are addicts that get money for drugs and alcohol by panhandling, right? You see them will work for food. They really don't want to work a lot of them, but they want free stuff. Generally not food. Give me money. Okay. Um, let's see where we were. So verse four, widow has children or grandchildren. They should learn, first of all, put their religion into practice, care for their own family, repay their parents and grandparents who wiped their bottom. Is that in the Bible? No, but I'm throwing it in there. For this is pleasing to God and it's only right. Amen. A lot of people believe that a child ought to respect their parents until they're of age and they move out and now they're no longer around their parents. The obligation for a child to care for their parent continues as long as they're both alive. Now, do I understand that not everybody is a stellar mother or father? Yes. There are some rotten parents. Yes, I understand that. Mine weren't, but I understand I've met people whose parents were absolutely horrendous at parenting. This is where it gets difficult. But going back to unconditional love, what better person to love than that father or mother who was horrible to you in spite of their horribleness, since you received love vertically from God and you weren't lovable and you were God's enemy and you thumbed your nose at God and he loved you anyway. 
what better way to give that love out than to someone undeserving like a parent. Now, they may not receive it. They may not want a relationship with you, but it's the higher ground for sure. Verse five, the widow who is really in need, truly in need, and left all alone, keyword, no kids nearby that can help. They ought to help. If she's left all alone, puts her hope in God. No wonder I've got nobody left, right? And our hope is in God anyway, is it not? But in a real tangible sense, she's putting her hope in God for food, lodging, clothing, sustenance, right? But there's a principle here I want you to see. Uh, that woman who's a widow in, indeed, left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. The picture is of not somebody that is not a believer, but just coming to the church, give me money. It's a person that is devout in their Christianity. Are you saying churches shouldn't help unbelievers? No, I'm not saying that. There's a time and a place for that as well. But in context, that's what he's talking about. This is a woman whose hope is in God. She does not uh, have means of support. A woman in that day, like I said, couldn't go out and get a job, especially an older woman. It would, it would be very unusual. Um, but she prays night and day. She's devout to ask God for help. What is she doing? Praying. She's a prayer warrior. That's going to come back later. Watch. But the widow, verse 6, who lives for pleasure, pleasure is dead even while she lives. Wanton, King James has, just lives for pleasure. That's what she's all about. What, is, what are you saying? I'm saying she's not living for God. He's giving us three categories, listen, of widows. The widow, whose husband has died, obviously, but has kids nearby. The kids should take care of that person. Category number two, the widow whose husband has died, she has no family anywhere. Maybe they didn't have kids. Maybe they moved to Australia, whatever the case may be. There's no one around to help her. The church ought to help that person. Category number three, doesn't say anything about the kids or not. This is just a woman that is living for pleasure for herself, okay? She may, there may be an implication here about alcohol or about impurity, sexually. A lot of women resorted to the only way they could make money. This is a little gross to say with one young person here. Is he still here? Oh, he's over there. But they could sell themselves, you know, in that way, I'll say that. Um, okay. Um, let's see, go back to the text with me for a second. And I have notes on this on the next page. So bear with me. So that's the third category, this woman that's living for uh, pleasure. Um, remember that all of us pray, don't we? And we ask God vertically, please answer my prayer, whatever it may be. Am I right? I want you to remember that all the answers to prayer, although ultimately coming from God, do not sometimes come directly from God. What are you talking about? I'm, I'm saying to you, what if Joshua is praying that God would somehow help him find a job? Okay. And Jeff has a company that needs someone to work. And Jeff finds out that Joshua, a godly dude, is available, able-bodied, 
and wants to work. And God puts it on Jeff's heart, who was about to hire Harold over here. Don't hire Harold, Jeff. I have someone else for you. And Jeff says, I got to wait, Harold. I'm not even sure why. In walks Josh and God puts it on Jeff's heart. God is answering the prayer ultimately to him be the glory. But Jeff is sensitive to that and hires him. He's in a sense answering the prayer. It's being answered through him, that kind of thing. Someone else is in need of money or a place to stay and they're praying about it and you know about their need and offer them help in some way kind of thing. Done through a church or done individually, either way, God gets the glory. Um, if we remember to give him the glory. Okay. Um, the widows that are being given help from the church, I'm about to show you, are going to be expected to do something in service at the church. Something. Well, what can they do? I already told you. Prayer. Most churches, and that's true in this church, the prayer warriors tend to be the older gals. It's awesome. Not that the older men can't pray. I'm an older man. I pray. You, younger men can pray. But the older gals, maybe they have more time or they know God better. They're just prayer warriors. It's a wonderful thing. If a man will not work, neither shall he eat. That's their way of contributing back to the church. I'm going to be on the prayer team, and I'm going to pray incessantly for the needs of the church. Let's keep rolling, shall we? Um, Let's see. Yeah, the widow living for pleasure, verse six, I want to cover one last thing, is dead even while she lives. Now, wait, she's either dead or alive. What do you mean by that? What, the, what he's saying is the widow who's living for pleasure is not living for God or his will or his glory. Therefore, that widow who's living for pleasure is unsaved. And even though she is alive physically, she is dead. Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. People tend to think of unbelievers as being, well, they're just spiritually, they're like, they're sick. They have a sickness. Bible never says that. It calls them spiritually, listen, dead. Why do you think you have to be born again? Quickened, made alive by the spirit. Because spiritually, there's people walking around who look like they're alive and they are physically, spiritually, they're dead. So she, that's why it says she's dead even though she's alive. Um, or did I say that backwards? Yeah, dead even while she lives. Verse seven, give the people these instructions, Tim, Timothy, so that no one may be open to blame. Now, what's that talking about? A church who doesn't, who isn't careful with how they dispense help or money to people might be blamed because, yeah, well, our church is helping Sylvia out over here and we gave her a hundred dollars. Oh, really? She was buying everybody drinks last night. Thanks to your hundred dollars. We should have checked Sylvia out. Did anybody check Sylvia? Did she smell like alcohol? All I'm saying is we have to be careful about dispensing the money because it ain't mine or his or hers. It's God's money, right? There, are, there needs to be rules. Um, let's see. Uh, verse eight, anyone who does not provide for their relatives. Now we're not talking about wi widows primarily. We're talking about the relatives of the widows who say, 
eh, let the church take care of Aunt Betty or grandma or mom. Anyone who does not provide, verse 8, for their own relatives, especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, biblically speaking, you don't see that term often, worse than an unbeliever. What could that mean? Just this. He's saying it is so fundamental to human existence that we ought to take, my brother and I ought to take care of mom or dad. Even pagans, unbelievers do that, usually, right? He's saying if they don't do that, they're worse than an unbeliever. What's happening in Ephesus is they don't want to give up the money, and they know the church is an easy mark for giving out $100 bills. Let them do it. We'll save our money. The primary responsibility is to be taken care of by the members of your own household from your family. Um, verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, uh-oh, is that the wrong verse? Wow, that's what's in my document here. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> wow. First Timothy. It is first Timothy. Um, okay. And five. And was that nine? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. We got the 60 year old thing. Those of you that are under 60, listen up. Just kidding. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60 and has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself, herself to all kinds of good deeds. Okay, now, this is not the same list. Most scholars that I read on this passage, he's not saying, if the widow is 59 and a half, don't give her any money, don't help her. Wait, even if she doesn't have any family, don't do it. 60, she's got to show ID. By the way, they didn't have ID anyway, right? What's going on here? Okay, a lot of scholars, not all, think that this is a separate list. Just as earlier he talked about the requirements for, the character requirements for an elder, leader of a church, pastor, shepherd, bishop, what have you, or the requirements for a deacon. This is a third category, a lot of scholars think, which is women who are going to be on a list to be cared for, and their job is specifically working for the church. Let me show you. No widow should be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60. Now, that's old in that in that uh, time of history. Um, people, age spans have gotten a lot older, although with COVID, I don't know if you know this, the age spans have come down a little bit. Um, don't mean to bum you out, but it's true. This is a woman who is over 60. She's probably not going to marry again in that culture. Um, but this is a woman of character that's going to be put on a list that will work in some capacity, usually prayer, at the church. What's the characteristics that she needs? Faithful to her husband. Literally in the Greek, it reads the opposite of elders and deacons, which was a, a, a one-woman man. This is a one-man 
woman. A woman that was faithful to her husband wasn't, she didn't have five different husbands, eight different husbands, anything wasn't loose sexually in any way. She's faithful to her husband or one man, woman, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children. Now notice the words, such as. Ladies, you should be thankful that's in there. What that means is this is not a checklist where if you haven't done one of these things, you're out. These are just examples, such as these sorts of things. It's basically another way of saying, with some examples, a woman of character, Christian character. Here, here are the examples. Well known for her good deeds. This woman is known. Oh, she's such a kind person. She helps these people and those kind of people, that kind of a person. Okay, what else? Bringing up children. That doesn't mean just her own children. It can mean she took in the neighbor's kids when the parents were fighting or having a, a, a bad marriage or whatever it may be. This is a woman that it's all outward. If you notice, she's always giving good deeds, take bringing up children, showing hospitality, inviting people over for dinner, stay the night at my house, washing the feet of the saints. Can we bring in the tubs of water and the soap now? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, Jeff's feet just been working out in the yard. You can do him first. Okay, listen, there were people that washed the saints' feet. Okay, you mean literally? I mean literally. Jesus himself washed the disciples' feet. Socks haven't been invented. Dirt has been invented. Mud has been invented. They're walking around in sandals, sometimes poor people barefoot. Feet are gross, especially at this time. At a home, when you walked in, there was be expected to be a little thing, a little container of water where you could wash your own feet. But even more hospitality, uh, a way of showing hospitality would be somebody you have one of your servants, somebody that works for you, wash the guest's feet. Washing the saint's feet means usually people that were coming from out of town and traveled a long distance on foot, somebody would wash their feet. But don't worry. Most scholars that I read on this passage say all that is, is a symbolic way of saying humble service, because washing feet was something that was the, only the lowest slave would do. All the more amazing, is it not, that that's what Jesus did after the Last Supper. Do you remember? He takes off his outer garment, puts on a towel, wears a towel like a little skirt almost, which was the dress of a slave at that time, and washes each of the disciples' feet, and then says to them, this is how I want you to treat each other, humbly. Remember, the guy washing feet is the Lord of the universe, the creator, the sustainer the Savior of the world, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, and he's washing feet. Talk about being an example. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He washes the disciples' feet. Do you remember the story? Until he gets to Peter, who says, no, 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 no. No way are you washing my feet. He understands this is a humble role. I'm way less than you, Jesus. Nope. And then Jesus says, I love this. If I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. 
And Peter says, okay, well then give me a whole bath. I want a shower, a bath. I want a hot tub, right? It's, it's a cute little story, but it's true. Okay. So this is not a list, a checklist of stuff widows are supposed to do, but it is, it does show character, known for good deeds, bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, humble service. That's the kind of person we're talking about. Helping those in trouble. Boy, you ever been in trouble and wish somebody, am I all alone in the world? And somebody says, what's going on? How can I help you? And devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Now, it starts, verse 11, sounds like a new paragraph, like we're leaving that subject. It's the same subject. We're just talking about the list of widows who are going to be the prayer warriors of the church and the workers at the church. Now he's going to bring in, well, what about younger widows? Verse 11, as for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. That does not mean don't care for them. This is a separate thing. For when their sensual desires overcome their de dedication to Christ, they want to marry. This is a sort of a list in which women are saying, I am coming to the church for assistance. In response to that, in gratitude for it, I'm willing to dedicate my life. You see the word dedication to Christ there in verse 11. I'm willing to dedicate my life to Christ to the point that I I'm sort of taking a vow of celibacy. I'm just going to be here to pray, work at the church. That's it. And the church will care for me. He's saying here in verse 11, younger widows, don't put them on the list. It's normal for a younger widow. Let's say her husband was in his 30s or 20s and the guy died somehow. And the woman is of marrying age. It says that when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, do you see the what happened there? Their dedication to Christ. Oh, no, really, I'm 100% dedicated to Christ, but whoa, who is that guy, right, kind of thing? Maybe not a good idea to put him on the list because it doesn't send the right message that, oh, yes, Sylvia lost her. Why is it Sylvia? Louise lost her husband. She's only 25. She's going to dedicate herself to service for the Lord. What happened to Louise? She lasted four months, met some guy, and that was the end of that. It sends a, a bad message. Their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ. They want to marry. He's not saying it's a sin to marry by any means. It's understandable. He's saying, don't put them on that particular list. Thus, verse 12, they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. They made a pledge to be on that list. I'm just going to serve Christ. Okay. They can't be, we saw earlier, sorry, ladies, they can't be elders. They can't be heads of churches. Uh, women is, are not to have authority over a man in a church, but can women teach children? Absolutely. Can they teach other women? Absolutely. Help with the music and singing? Absolutely. But they're not to have authority over a man. So they made this vow and now they're breaking their first pledge. It doesn't look right. And it isn't right. Verse 13, besides they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house and not only do they become idlers or idle, but they also become gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. These are women that are able-bodied and they're just going around gossiping and telling you, you know what I heard about so-and-so? The way Christians do that, by the way, you ever notice? 
I'm just telling you that just, Jim, so you know how to pray. But here's what I heard. Really? Is that why you're telling him or you're just gossiping? In any case, um, they are uh, uh, kind of a separate category. Gossip, whether you know it or not, may seem harmless. It's a horrible sin. If you don't, uh, if you wouldn't want someone to say that about you, don't say it. Right? There's so many other things we can talk about, but it's human nature, isn't it? There are whole industries of gossip. They're called all those Hollywood magazines, aren't they? The latest about so and so and Lady Gaga, you know, doesn't interest me. Hopefully, it doesn't interest you too, uh, as well. Verse 14 So I counsel younger widows to marry have children, manage their homes, to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Is he saying you have to remarry? No. But the normal thing for a younger woman would be she gets married, has children, right? Um, keeping the, the manage their homes, give the enemy, that's Satan, but it's also unbelievers, no opportunity for slander because they're looking. When you came to Christ, Satan painted a bullseye on your back. Some, verse 15, have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. You say, whoa, 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 like Satanists, you mean like devil worshipers? Listen, the context, the broad context of 1 Timothy is false teachers in the church. Timothy is supposed to stay there, warn them. And the ones that won't repent, boot them out. Most scholars, the verse I just read to you, said that what was going on is that the false teachers had convinced some of the younger gals about their false doc doctrine. And by doing so, they've turned away to follow Satan. Or they had left the church, but it's the majority opinion was they had been suckered into believing the false teachers and what they were uh, teaching. We have some ideas about what they taught. We talked about that in the other parts of this book, but it's not clear um, exactly what they were teaching. Okay, let's keep rolling. We got a few minutes. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. That's pretty good. All right. Verse 16, if any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Kind of a restatement, but specifically aimed at women. Now, is it true that these women ought to help their relatives who are widows? Yes. But is it also true in a practical sense that sometimes grandma does not want to live with her daughter? Mom doesn't want to live with her daughter. They drive each other nuts. It's possible or vice versa. Mom drives me nuts. I can't. He's saying the higher ground is if you're a believer and you've got widows in your family, help them. Don't let the church be burdened so that the church can help the widows who really need it. Talk to a deacon at this church or an elder. They'll tell you it is a hard job sifting through the requests for help. It's hard. 
We don't want to say no. We're believers. We want to, we have this, the, in, our, in this church, they have a thing called the benevolence fund, the deacons do. And it is for that exact thing. This family is really hurting legitimately. No, they're not on drugs. They're believers and they need help. And they may help with a house payment or buying groceries or whatever it may be, but they have to be so careful. There's so much fraud, so many ripoff type things that go on and nothing will impugn the gospel more than you gave that guy money. Do you know what he did? He bought a gun and he robbed a bank or some crazy thing, right? They have to just be very, very careful and prayerful about it and really do the due diligence. Okay. The elders, verse 17, who direct the affairs of the church. Earlier, we learned elders did what? Preach, teach, and public reading of scripture. Remember that? Here's a fourth duty thrown in. Doesn't negate the other three. Preach, teach, and exhort people and and encourage them to obey uh, the word. The elders who direct the affairs of the church, that's the general affairs of the church. There has to be leaders. These guys that are the elders, I happen to be an elder here. It's not an easy job. Jim's been an elder. He's about to be one again, probably. It's not an easy job. Directing the general affairs of the church, it involves the budget, the decisions. Do we spend the money on this equipment or not do this? Do we hire so-and-so? all the affairs of the church. Should we have a potluck? The danger is a church becoming too much like the world. There's a church in Houston, a church that is held in a bar and the bar is open. So you can go to the service and have a, you know, a whiskey sour or a couple of beers and praise the Lord. See, we want to show people that we, we're just like they are. No, we're not. Isn't that crazy? In any case, um, we do have an open bar here. If you no, just uh, We need a coffee bar here to keep you awake, right? Are you awake? Say amen. Okay, good. That was a little scattered, that amen. Um, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Now, what are we talking about here? Most of the commentators, you might be surprised to learn, think that this is about financial compensation. Double honor just sounds like especially honor them and respect them. They're doing a good job. But elsewhere in the Bible, we learn the principle, it's in 1 Corinthians, and it's in Luke, it's all over the place, that those who serve in a church um, are worth, actually as their job, are worthy of some compensation. The Old Testament scripture that's always used is, don't muzzle the ox while it's threshing, right? In other words, the ox is working in the fields, if the ox is hungry and it's working in the, the field itself, he ought to be able to eat. Are you in favor of $50 million a year salaries for pastors? No, that's ridiculous. And there's pastors with air-conditioned dog houses. Remember all that in the 1980s and all those scandals. And the world looks at that and goes, see, they're a bunch of hypocrites. It's all about this. And for some pastors, it is. But a wage that is fair and equitable 
is okay to be given to them. Um, let's see, in the, uh, I have it in my notes somewhere. Let's see what verse does is that. That is verse, yeah, next page, sorry. Um, the double honor thing, look at chapter five, verse, uh, no, that's the wrong one. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have the right citation. Sorry about that. But um, it, elsewhere, it's, it speaks of being honor, uh, giving, given honor as having to do with financial compensation, um, double honor. Uh, let's see, we already talked about that. You know what? We're out of time, so we're going to quit right now. I'm going to close with prayer, and then um, we'll hopefully see you next Tuesday night, and those of you on Zoom as well. Thank you for being here. Sorry, it's a few minutes late. I'm, the clock behind me is always like three minutes, and I make the mistake of looking at it. It's three minutes uh, slow. Let's pray, and we'll get out of here, shall we? Thank you for this time we could be in your word, God. What a blessing. We've gotten so many lessons here. Help us to be better examples to the people around us, whether we're elders, deacons, widows, whoever we are. The world is watching us. May our lives reflect your beauty, your goodness, the love that you've shown. Hopefully, we are shining outward to those around us. Make us more useful in your kingdom. Everyone in this room, God, Everyone on Zoom has a gift. May we discover it, nurture it, and use it for your glory. Thank you that your spirit is the one that gives the gifts. Help us to remember the importance of the reading of scripture, and not just in church, but at home for each one of us. Help us to be studying it, knowing what we believe and why we believe it, and then living it out, God. May we be used for your glory and of a heart for those who are in need in our church. May we, the church body, recognize needs even before the deacons find out about them and help people ourselves. Thank you for these, this time in your word, God. We love you. We truly owe you everything. So help us to be good servants who have that attitude of humble service. We pray these things in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. We'll be here next week. Hopefully you will too. God bless you. Those of you that are here, please say hello to someone you don't know and introduce yourself. It's really important. Those of you on Zoom, God bless. We'll see you soon.